Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Good morning. (laughs) As you all are aware of, I would hope, uh, the Olympics are happening right now. Uh, They're on. They've been happening. They're taking place. And what I've been so impressed with, right, is the epic display of athleticism, of training, of heart. The list could go on and on. But I'm reminded of the Olympics this morning as I come to close our series, Movement That Matters, because when you watch Olympic sports, every movement that these athletes make is precise. My wife and I have been watching a ton of swimming, and uh, their goal, right, is to move across the water as efficiently as possible, right? And every little thing they do matters. It's the same with track, with gymnastics, whatever you're watching, every movement has to be precise, and every movement that they make matters big time. I think our focus in this series is similar. We want to create a disciple-making movement that matters. We want to get rid of the fluff movement that doesn't make disciples, that doesn't propel us forward. And we want to focus on how do we reach new people for Jesus and how do we grow deeper in our own discipleship with Christ. And we've been working through this lens of, of the four chairs of discipleship. Right, we have these up here. The first chair is the non-believer, someone who does not have faith or relationship with Christ. The second chair would be the new Christian, maybe somebody who would identify as a baby or an infant in the faith. The third chair is someone who is being equipped for their purpose, maybe like an adolescent teenager in the faith, so to speak. And today we come to chair four, which is a, a mature disciple maker. Someone who's sitting in chair four is someone who is multiplying themselves. They've gone through several stages of discipleship, but now they're a disciple maker. I think the image of this is displayed through the chair we've chosen for this week. It's simple. It's four chairs stacked on top of one another. This represents multiplication, right? Because a chair for disciples, a disciple maker multiplying themselves. They're passionate about reaching new people for Jesus. They've been equipped. That's chair three. And now they're making disciples in chair four. See, a disciple maker is someone who's not only equipped to make disciples, but someone who is actually making disciples. Please do not let your pride get in the way of which chair you actually fall into. And a chair four disciple uh, pours into those people around them. They recognize what chair people are in, and they, they draw them to move along in their apprenticeship to Jesus. I think the most obvious example of this will be those who are in chair one. Right, so a, a disciple maker recognizes those in their life who do not have a relationship or faith in Christ, and they're intentional with that. Maybe it's over a shared interest or the fact that you live on the same street, but a disciple maker is intentional with sharing the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus with those around them who've never experienced a relationship with Christ. However, a disciple maker also sees those around them that are in chair two, and they challenge them and encourage them and walk with them. They teach them, they're striving to grow with them, and they call them out of chair two, especially when you consider that most Christians today are stuck in chair two. Disciple makers also work to to inspire and equip those in chair three, whether it's giving them an opportunity to do some kingdom work uh, or challenging them to grow in a specific area. Disciple makers know that everyone is called to make disciples, and so they long to equip those in chairs two and three to carry out the mission of Jesus to the best of their ability. Luke 6.40 says, Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And we're talking about our goal in this disciple-making movement to be uh, to create disciples who are capable of making disciples, who are capable of making disciples. 
right? But we also recognize that the more and more we grow in our discipleship to Jesus, the more and more we become like him. And that's what we call sanctification, right? In other words, our goal is to become more and more like our teacher, who is Jesus. And yet, as, as a chair for disciple, as a disciple maker, you get to play that role of a teacher in someone else's life as well. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? This is that call that chair for disciples get to give, right? It's a, it says, hey, come follow me. Let's follow Christ together. Let me say this. Some of you need to reach out to other people and say, hey, I'm a little further down the road than you in my walk with Christ. Come follow me. Let's follow Christ together. And the flip side is true too. Others of you need to recognize you don't have it all together. You need to get someone in your life, maybe someone from this church and say, hey, you're a little further down the road in your walk with Christ than me. Please be careful how you word that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's what it looks like. Can I follow you as you follow Christ? That's what it looks like to, to have this chair for be operational, for us to be reproducing ourselves, to be multiplying God's kingdom through making disciples uh, and through following Jesus. And that's why the heart of a disciple maker is to reach new people for Jesus. Because it's this chair for disciple, they're people who, they're not only able to recognize where are people at, who's in chair one, two, three. They're also people who are willing and able to say, hey, come follow me. Let's follow Jesus together. I want to bring you along in this journey of discipleship. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What Paul is saying here is that uh, pastors, life group leaders, your teachers, elders, these are the people who are here to equip all of you for the work of ministry. It doesn't, it doesn't make pastors and leaders and elders exempt from the call to make disciples. But I think so many of us, and myself included, can approach church as a place of like, well, if I can just get my neighbor there, then Pastor Derek will take care of the rest, right? We've all had that mindset from time to time, but that's exactly what Paul is not saying here. Paul says that pastors, your, your life group leaders, teachers, they're here to equip you to make disciples, so it's recognizing that everyone who identifies as a follower of Christ is called to be making disciples. And Derek's sermon last week, he shared a little bit about his family and their, their disciple-making efforts. And what he said was so powerful. He says, all of this has nothing to do with me being a pastor, but it has everything to do with me being a Christian. And what a reminder, anybody who follows Christ is called to bring those along and to be making disciples of others. I want to speak uh, very bluntly for a minute, if that's all right uh, with you guys, uh, because I think we often confuse serving in church with the work of the ministry. And we often confuse serving in church with the work of the ministry. What I mean is that Jesus' command to those who follow him comes from Matthew 28, which says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is the work that every Christian is called to. Right? He didn't say, now go, sign up and volunteer in your local church, as if that's the end goal. Right now, certainly, certainly hear me out, the church is the structure, it's the design that God has put in place, right? It is to be the vehicle for disciple-making and discipleship, absolutely. 
And it's not to belittle or, or be ungrateful for those who are serving in church. We desperately need people to serve here at LifePoint. We're consistently pushing for more volunteers. We just hear like 84 volunteer spots at Family Field Day alone. Right? We need people to serve in church. But serving in church is not the end goal. Disciple making is the end goal. Serving in church is what you do because you're a Christian. In other words, when, when I was growing up, I think this will help explain, uh, my parents would give me chores and I would complain. That's typically how that went uh, in my household. I don't know if yours is similar or not. Uh, but what my parents would tell me is that they'd say, Noah, taking out the trash, clean up the backyard, whatever it might be, uh, that's something you do because you're a part of this family. In other words, it was, Noah, thank you for taking out the trash. But it was often followed up with, but don't think that taking out the trash is going above and beyond. That's what we expect of our family members is that we would share the load of responsibility necessary. I don't know if your family operates like that or not, but that's how the church works, right? That's, that's how church works. For those of you who serve, thank you so much. We could not pull off Sunday morning services. We couldn't do Thursday night youth stuff. We couldn't do events like Family Field Day without those of you who are willing to volunteer your time and energy consistently over and over again. So thank you. But for those of you who aren't serving, I want to say, don't think that serving is, is going above and beyond. Serving is, is what we do as Christians. It's recognizing Hey, in order for discipleship to happen at LifePoint, uh, somebody's got to stuff papers in the back of all these chairs. So, you know, I, I can come and give an hour during the week at some point and help do that because that's what's got to happen. Right? It's, it's recognizing, oh, if someone's going to show up church anew, in order for them to feel welcome, somebody's got to greet them. Somebody's got to seat them. Somebody's got to answer their questions at the Connection Hub. So, you know what? I, since it's got to happen and I'm a part of this family, I can offer an hour of my Sunday morning to help make that happen. Right? It's that sort of mindset we take towards serving and recognizing that there is a difference between serving in church and making disciples, oftentimes. And the work of the ministry that's being talked about in Ephesians 4 is making disciples and bringing everyone to know Christ. And that's what each of you are called to do. And it's because of that calling that Dan Spader, who, who wrote the, the four-chair discipling book we're walking through, he calls the chair four disciple the enemy of traditional church. Okay. Uh, it sounds counterintuitive, but the reality is once you've been equipped in chair three, there should be this genuine conviction to move and make disciples. In fact, the passion could run so deep that maybe it causes you to stop caring so much about structure and org charts and production, whatever it might be, because you're so passionate about reaching for people for Jesus. It can't wait till Sunday morning. It's got to happen Tuesday night at my house in the week, whatever it might be right? You've experienced relationship with Jesus, and that should motivate you to share him with everyone. And when you're equipped in chair three, and you move to chair four, it's because you realize that you hold the keys to eternal life. As Peter says, right, Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? Moving from chair three to chair four is recognizing I have keys to eternal life, and I want to share that with everybody around me. So how does this make disciple makers enemy of, of traditional church? Because the church is often too focused on its own events or its own service opportunities or its own productions and not enough on making disciples. And I, I've been praying all week and just been convicted, but I pray that LifePoint is the kind of church that celebrates with you when you share about how you're reaching your neighborhood or your friends or your family or whoever for Christ. I hope and pray our heart towards disciple-making is eternally minded enough to celebrate that with you, whether those people ever step foot on our property or not. 
I desperately pray that we're not the church that comes to you. When you, when you share about your disciple-making efforts, I pray we're not the church that says, oh, you led your neighbor to Christ, but you didn't bring him to Sunday service. You should really support your local church better than that. Man, that is so selfish and prideful. It's not an eternal mindset towards disciple-making. I pray that that's not the heart that we have here. My prayer is, though, that LifePoint embodies Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, that we would equip you all to do the work of the ministry, equipping you to make disciples, to celebrate with you when disciples are made, when people are moving from chair one to two to three to four. Because that's what disciple-making is all about. That's our mission, right? That's the work of the ministry is reaching new people for Jesus and pushing those who already know him to go deeper into their discipleship with him. Well, each week in, in this series, we've looked at some of the needs for each person that sits in one of these chairs. Uh, in other words, kind of been reflection points to say, what chair am I in and what do I need uh, for my discipleship or my disciple-making? And what I want to do today is it's a little bit different, but we're going to look at uh, common barriers to discipleship. What I mean by that is that these are things that stand and sit in between you and the Lord and in between you and others that prohibit you from growing in your walk with the Lord uh, and even can cause you to not bear fruit in your disciple making. Uh, I know that there's probably many of these barriers. We're going to look at three uh, of what I believe are the most significant barriers uh, and they're outlined in, again, our book by Dan Spader. Uh, the first of these barriers is satisfaction. See, I believe satisfaction is possibly the most dangerous barrier to discipleship because it's the least intimidating, it's the most inviting, it's the most easily slipped into, and the most widely accepted approach to following Jesus. In some senses, I think we've been talking about satisfaction all summer. This is the idea that at some point, spiritually, you've made it, and you get to kick off your shoes and relax, right? You get to hang out and rest. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you think you've done enough or learned enough. Maybe you've just had enough of Christianity, and so you're just going to coast now. I think this happens in all areas of life. When it happens in faith, right, maybe you've become satisfied with the work that you've seen God do in your life. You don't want more, right? But you're good. You're satisfied where you're at. I think it happens in our professional lives get that job we want, and now we get to hang out until retirement, make a paycheck along the way. I've seen it happen with kids, right? It's like, oh, if all my kids would just behave at once, then I'd be satisfied. I could check out for a while. I'd be good, right? I, I, the reality is that sometimes satisfaction is a cover-up for a different attitude called apathy, and apathy creates a barrier in your walk with Christ, Apathy sits between these chairs because it convinces you to, to be able to say, hey, I did it. Chair two, I've made it. I'm going to chill out here for a little bit. It's like, whoa, God, stop. Stop calling me out. I'm good right here. Right, it might not look like it up here, but I promise you, chair two is comfortable. Because right? we convince ourselves that we are moving deeper into our faith. Because we set our own goals. We let ourselves be the judge of our own faith. Instead of asking, God, what are you calling me to in my walk today? What are you trying to teach me, Lord? He's never finished with you. And yet we try to hold him off with, with some sense of satisfaction or accomplishment. Some sense of like, hey, God, I've been serving here for years. And now this young youth pastor tells me i got to make disciples too. Like, we're good though, God, right? Like, we're cool. I've been here for a while. Again, chair two is comfortable, guys, and it's satisfaction that causes you to stop growing in your relationship with the Lord and to start being proud of yourself for what you've done, which is really just a mask of apathy towards your apprenticeship to Jesus. 
And so because of this barrier of satisfaction, I want to highlight three of the quick needs for a chair for a disciple. The first is meat or solid food. A chair for a disciple is an adult in their faith and, and walk with Christ. First uh, Corinthians 3 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. But as you mature in your faith, you need to be fed with more and more solid food. This is part of being a disciple maker. It's recognizing the difference between milk and solid food. And I don't want to get too graphic here. But if you take the picture of a grown adult who's still breastfeeding, I think we're going to see uh, nutrients that aren't being met and hunger that's still going to be there. 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul says that people are going to drum up for themselves teachers who tell their itching ears what they want to hear. A disciple maker is not one who listens to things that are only positive or that never disagree with them or don't convict them or are only encouraging. No, a disciple maker, a chair for a disciple, is someone who chases after God's word because they're hungry when they're not met with solid food or meat. And that meat, that, that solid food, that is the Bible. Nowhere else can you go and find the words of eternal life. Nowhere else can you go and read the inerrant and infallible word of God. Nothing else has the power to sustain you like the Bible does. You want to grow to chair four? You want to stay in chair four? You got to feed yourself spiritual meat and stop nursing yourself. It's only going to leave you wanting more. Come feast on God's word and be fed. The second need of a chair four disciple is wisdom. And the disciple maker shows wisdom. And this one is simple, guys. The more time you spend with the Lord, the more wise you will become. The more you read his word, the more wise you will become. The more you seek to understand him, the more wise you will become. If you've been in the church for a long time, you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, your level of wisdom should reflect that. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to chase after wisdom, chase after understanding like it's hidden treasure. That's how we know someone in chair four is, is uh, becoming more and more wise. They're chasing after that wisdom like hidden treasure. And part of being wise is surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded. Mentors, wise counsel. Chair four still needs people ahead of them on their walk to walk with them. Discipleship is a lifelong process. You've never made it. Right, just because you're in chair four doesn't mean you're a perfect disciple. There doesn't come a point where you get to say, okay, I'm like Jesus now. Until maybe, maybe until you stand in front of God the Father. And he looks at you. And what does he see? He sees you clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Not because you're in chair four when you died. No, but because of your faith in Christ and his sacrifice. And Jesus' righteousness has covered you. That might be the only point at which you get to say, I'm like Jesus now. Right? And that's why there should never be a point when, when you have people stop pouring into your life. There should never come a point where you get to a point where you say, spiritually, I'm good. I'm going to give. I'm going to pour into others. But I don't need that for myself. Man, that's arrogant and it's false. And it's likely a reflection of sin in your life that does not want to be uncovered. Another barrier uh, in your relationship with Christ, in, in your discipleship, uh, is idols. And I'm going to talk about specifically good things that become idols. I think this is kind of counterintuitive, but, but good things often hold us back from a deeper relationship with Christ. It's easy to think of some things as idols, maybe pride or money or sex, those things. But what about things like family, marriage, 
friendships, living in a safe neighborhood, living in a comfortable home, your kids' accomplishments. I don't know what it is for you, but some of these things that we've been designed and created to enjoy become idols. You might not be moving any deeper in your relationship with Christ because you have idols in your life, even good things in your life, but you care about them more than you care about your relationship with the Lord. These idols might be hard for you to see, but if you're anything like me, uh, we are pretty quick to spot idols in other people's lives. Pretty quick to realize what other people value more than their own discipleship. And what if we use that, not to judge each other, not to shame one another, but what if we use that to disciple one another? Like, what if it wasn't so uncommon for one of you to come up to me and say, no, no, Pastor Noah, I think you really value whatever, fill in the blank, more than you value chasing after Christ. And what if my response wasn't to get defensive, which is my natural response, but what if, what if I saw it as an opportunity to say, thank you. Thank you so much for calling me out my walk with Christ. Thank you so much for being there for me as I seek to follow Christ. Thank you for following Christ alongside with me. Right? You want to know what you idolize? Ask those closest to you who also seek to follow Christ what you value more than your own relationship with Christ. And side note, if somebody asks you, please do not hold back. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But you help no one if you're not honest in these conversations. Dan Spader, in, in his book, right, and he's talking about idols. He talks about the importance of pruning when it comes to gardening. Uh, I do have a garden, but I'm not that much of a gardener, so I'll take his words for it. He says uh, that gardening uh, and pruning, they often remove something good. Right? He says a gardener removes a flower, which is a good thing, from the branch to make room for fruit. Now, I want to remind you, as, as you think about your idols, just because something's a good thing in your life doesn't mean that Jesus won't remove it to make room for fruit. And just because it's good doesn't mean it doesn't need to be removed. The last barrier that we're going to talk about today is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin is one of the biggest barriers in your relationship with Christ and your relationship with others. Maybe it's unconfessed or simply unaddressed. Maybe it's habitual sin. Whatever it is, it lives in your heart. And it quickly hardens you to the love and the grace that Christ has to offer. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Right? The author of Hebrews is telling us that living in habitual, unconfessed sin does so much damage to your relationship with the Lord that there's no longer a sacrifice that atones for your sin. That is a huge barrier. That's a huge barrier in your relationship with the Lord. Proverbs 28, 13 similarly says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and turns from them or forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's the same idea, right? If you hide your sin, you won't succeed. But if you confess it and you turn from it, you will receive mercy. So as I'm, I'm reading this, writing this, I'm like, well, why don't more of us confess our sin? I came to the conclusion that I don't have time to even begin unpacking that. But what I will say is that sin is often unconfessed for a reason. Maybe you truly just really enjoy it. Maybe it's embarrassing. Maybe you feel isolated in it. Whatever it is, that reason, uh, the sin is often paired with shame. And shame tells you lies daily. Shame tells you that no one will love you if you confess what's going on. 
Shame tells you that God won't forgive you or that you won't be able to bear his wrath when you confess your sin. Shame tells you you're the only one who thinks like this. Shame says you're the only one who struggles with this. Shame says you're the only one who can't stop looking at that. Shame convinces you to leave your sin unconfessed and to hide it. Stuff it down. Don't let anybody else see it. What does the Bible say about our sin and whether or not we should confess it? Repeatedly, it says, you'll be forgiven. Your relationships will grow. You'll be in the light. Your father already knew about it anyways. Now you can have real relationship. It also says there will never be condemnation for those who are in Christ. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please do not deceive yourself. Shame might tell you not to confess your sin, but pride will convince you you don't have any. Let me break it to you this way. Everyone in here is sinful, but so is everyone else in here. There's no shame in confessing sin. In fact, it should be celebrated. Why? Because God says he's going to forgive when we confess our sin and that he's going to cleanse us from it. So if that's God's response to sin, how could our response be any different when our brothers and sisters confess their sins to us? See, shame tells us that we are something bad, that confessing your sin is something you should be afraid of. But remember that the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's not your fear of his judgment, not your your worry of your spouse finding out what you're doing or the consequences that might take place if someone knew what you were up to. No, Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repent because we know we're met with his love and his grace every single time. That's why it's so important to remember that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of unmerited grace. That joy that comes from living in Christ is joy that comes from knowing that Christ has done all the work and he's forgiven me more than I could ever imagine. When you live with unconfessed sin, whether you know it or not, you are declaring that you believe in a works-based salvation. Say that again. When you live with unconfessed sin, whether you know it or not, you are declaring that you live in a works-based salvation. What do I mean by that? I mean that your heart becomes hardened to God's grace because you're not receiving it. So you either don't believe it's real, because if you did, you would know that it's there for you, or or you don't think you need it. And both of those are works-based, right? Works-based salvation. Let me tell you, that is not the gospel of Jesus. The Bible says repeatedly, you cannot earn God's grace, period. So my heart goes out to those of you who, who have unconfessed sin, who thinks that God's grace isn't big enough to cover it, that, that his love might stop if you confess what's going on. Man, my heart breaks for you. Let me tell you this. Jesus' blood has covered your sin. There's nothing that the grace of God cannot handle. And today is a great day to confess your sin and to stop hiding, to stop working so hard. Come and receive the grace of God. The Bible says it's free. It's free. The Bible says God's going to give it out to whoever confesses and admits. Right? But my heart also goes out to those of you who don't think you need God's grace. Or maybe you don't even want it. And let me tell you, I have 
been right where you are. I don't know how else to break it to you other than to say, stop sinning. You know you're not living how you ought to. Repent and come to Jesus. Again, confess your sins. Stop working so hard and come to Jesus. Because unconfessed sin hardens your heart to those around you. Because you end up ashamed. You end up believing the lies of shame. But you also end up frustrated and bitter with people who represent Jesus to you. And on the surface, you might say it's because, oh, they're going to judge me or they just don't understand. But deep down, you know it's because you have sin that needs to be exposed and brought into the light so that you might repent of it and you could leave it in your past and be forgiven of it. Because we believe that salvation is by grace through faith, a free gift so that no man may boast. Not a free gift for those who have earned it. A free gift to all who are willing to admit their need of a savior. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Unconfessed, unaddressed, habitual sin may be one of the largest barriers between you and the Lord and between you and those in your life who care about you. I hope that you don't take this lightly and that we can walk out of here today and recognize these barriers not only recognize them, that we could do something about it so that these barriers don't stand in our way anymore. You see, as, as disciple makers, for those of you who are in chair four, also for those of you who ever long to be in chair four, you are to be passionate about reaching new people for Jesus. You ought to be making disciples, right, and those around us, multiplying disciples by reproducing ourselves, right, and calling people, come follow me, let's follow Christ together. But we can't do this without recognizing the barriers in our own relationship with the Lord. Because these are the same barriers that those who you're discipling are going to deal with as well. It might be satisfaction or apathy. It might be idols, right? even, even good things. Maybe you have unconfessed sin in your life that's keeping you from experiencing the grace of God. Whatever it is, don't let these things stand in the way of your discipleship. In whatever chair you're in, don't get comfortable. Do not let satisfaction stop you from ever moving out of chair two. Don't let the idols of this world, something as small as comfort, keep you from being an equipped worker, sitting in chair three who moves to chair four. Don't let unconfessed sin stop you from being fruitful as it rots you from the inside out. I want to let you all know that today we have a handout in the lobby that summarizes this entire sermon series we've done and the book written by Dan Spader. I highly recommend you pick it up. It's also online uh, at our website at lifepoint.org slash discipling tools. Uh, this is a fantastic way to continue in conversation about where you are in your discipleship journey, how you might grow, where you need to grow but also how you can be growing others around you and reaching new people for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you. God, we ask for your grace, Lord. We ask for your wisdom as we seek to uh, grow in our discipleship to you, God. Would you challenge us? Would you comfort us? God, I pray against these barriers in anybody's life, God, against satisfaction, it's unconfessed sin, Lord. God, I pray for those who have unconfessed sin that they would confess that to you and to others, God, that you might work in their heart. 
Lord, I pray for those who find themselves in a place of, of, uh, of contentment with the things of this world, God. For those who have idols, even if they're good things, God, I just pray for, for each of us now that we would recognize these barriers that keep us from bearing fruit and keep us from knowing you deeper and deeper, God, and that we would do something about it. So God, I lift up uh, the rest of this time that we have to you, God. We thank you for who you are. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.